Many of you out there probably know my guest today. It's Josh Copel. He's a restaurateur. He's a content creator. He is the host of the Full Comp Podcast, and I am thrilled to be able to welcome him to the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. On today's episode, you'll see there are plenty of things that we disagree on, but there are even more things uh, that we are so closely aligned on. Uh, more than anything, we both believe in this industry, and we believe we fight passionately for all of the chefs, operators, restaurant owners out there. We know how hard it is, and and we also know how easy it can be. We're both building uh, a future in, in the work that we do, uh, both on our, our respective podcasts and in the work we do with our clients. I'm thrilled for you to hear this conversation. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week, we toggle back and forth between a monologue-style format and then an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated concepts, whether on the marketing side or on the operations side, and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, over the past month, I've taught a handful of webinars and many of you have reached out because you missed the previous ones. I've gotten a, a bunch of requests to teach more and so I'm happy to oblige. I will give this webinar just two more times, today, Monday, January 24th, and tomorrow, Tuesday, January 25th. The two secrets to restaurant profitability. We will talk about what profit is, I mean what it really is, and then why that is important. I'm going to share with you my two biggest secrets to restaurant profitability, the best way I know how to drive revenue, and a framework for guarding against a 20% profit margin. Yes, you heard me right. I'm going to teach you how to achieve 20% profits in your business, and then I'm going to teach you how to teach your team to guard that profit. Secure your spot in this webinar now by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash webinar. Of course, that link is in the show notes. Now, my interview with Josh Copel. So my guest on today's show is Josh Copel. He's a restaurateur, tech pioneer, content creator. He is the host of the Full Comp Podcast. Uh, I uh, had the pleasure of being a, a guest on that podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome Josh here to this podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chip. I'm glad to be here, man. It's uh, It's been a wild ride these last couple of years. Um, I think I said this on your podcast, uh, if not on air, certainly uh, certainly when we were off air. Uh, I appreciate the generosity that you bring to the work that you do. Uh, I think restaurateurs, I think our industry is uh, is in much need of love and generosity and, and all the help they can get. Um, I certainly try to do that on this show. Uh, and that seems to be kind of woven into the thing, uh, to the things that you're doing. Is that true or false? False. No, I'm kidding. It's totally true. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, here's the deal, you know, I, I mean, j j just to provide like high level background, you know, I, uh, I, I achieved like the pinnacles of success in our industry. I was seated in Los Angeles, second largest city in the country, California's the sixth largest economy in the world. And I was one of the most successful restaurateurs in the city in every tier of dining. I had a successful bar for over 10 years, Michelin rated fine dining restaurant, and then spun that out into a successful fast casual concept that was rated the best fried chicken by LA Weekly. So like, I did really well, and my life was hard every single day. Like, almost impossible every single day. And all I could think was, as I would drive around the city is, like if it's this hard for me, and look at the view I have, I'm sitting at the top of this hill, like, what's it like for that dude in the strip mall? Like, how is everyone else thriving if I'm barely surviving? And, and not necessarily financially, you know? Like, we, we did well financially, but it's ultimately my quality of life, it wasn't great. And, and I was making compromises that I didn't feel really good about. And that was the conversation I wanted to have when the pandemic hit. So, I mean, uh, I mean, this thing, this pandemic just jerked all of us, forced 
this conversation. And now I think it's a conversation we're having about mental health and work-life balance and priorities. I mean, certainly we're seeing this uh, with the staffing crunch, right? We're, we're, we're leading an industry uh, that people don't want to be a part of, and that, that shouldn't surprise us because it's been uh, somewhat undesir- undesirable for a long time. But, um, but, but how... I want to go back, and I want to talk about your. I want to talk about some of your background, how you get into this. But this is a really interesting line of conversation. I'm glad you kind of launched things off here. Talk about that that work life balance. Talk about what you dealt with personally and what you're seeing now through the pandemic and then post pandemic. Have things changed? Uh, do we still need them to change? I, I think the the change is inevitable. Inevitable, and you know, I feel the same way about changing the way we work that I do about changing our menus in the way that no one will accept change. Everyone's excited about improvement, though, right? So you can change anything yeah. you want about your restaurant as long as it's perceived as an improvement. And, and I feel the same exact way about like the way we operate. I think that you know the idea that you have to work eighty to a hundred hours a week to basically make no money, and some of us out there were paying to work for free. It just it doesn't make sense. And so, where, where the biggest shifts have to take place in my mind are in our values, what we hold dear. You know, I, I, I always tell this story about, you know, sitting with my GM and he's quitting and he's like, listen, man, like I, I'm just burnt out. Like I worked 60 hours last week. And as the words are coming out of his mouth, my executive chef is rounding the corner, looks to do dead in the eye and goes, I remember my first part time job. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that's like that's yeah. what we do. And we pride that and we work hard because we work hard. Right. And. Yep. and if you want to work hard and you're all about that grind, that's fine. But if you're not being compensated well for it, then what's the point? Right. Yep. And, and so like the big shifts that, that took place for me when the pandemic hit, because I, like everyone else, didn't really have time to question my life and the choices that I made. Yeah. You know, I began to look and see, you know, what did I really value? Um, and with all of the accolades and with the success and the prominence within the industry um, that I, I had so desperately wanted, I found a lot of it to be really hollow um, because my daughter didn't really know me that well. I, I mean, it you know, it hurts to say now, but when the pandemic hit, she was 18 months old and I had maybe changed two or three diapers. I had never given her yeah. a bath. Um, and, and those are the things you would look back on in your life and be like, man, that was a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah. I wrote uh, an op-ed directly related to this where I said, you know, as, especially as restaurateurs, we look at our family and we pity them because we say, man, I feel so bad for them that they don't have me and I'm not around. But the truth is my daughter is never going to remember these days. But I could. I should, I will. And so at the end of the day, we feel like we're hurting our families when we're hurting ourselves just as much. So then how did we get into this? I mean, I think you and I uh, were raised a certain way in this industry. I've been in this industry now 20 plus years. I think uh, you, you and I probably both came into it um, at about the same time. And there was, you wear that uh, those 80-hour work weeks like a badge of courage. I've opened nine different restaurants uh, over the course of my life. I made a niche for myself. I prided myself on my ability to do that. But you know what's even harder than like working in a restaurant? Is opening a restaurant. For sure. And then opening another restaurant and then another restaurant. And... Uh, and, it, and it wears on us. And um, and again, like the joke is, right? <laughs> You're working 60 hours. That's part time. How did how did we get into that? How do we get into that? And then I want to use that to talk about how we maybe get out of that. For sure. Uh, what year did you graduate from Cornell? <laughs> I didn't go to Cornell. Oh, me neither. How funny, right? You learned how to run restaurants from some asshole that learned from some asshole that learned from some asshole. Like That's the, right. The hurdle in this industry is groupthink. It's that we don't look outside of our industry to learn lessons. We haven't been particularly open and vulnerable about the things that are working well. Um, and yeah. and th- there's, there's no true formalized education for being a business owner in the hospitality space we were taught to prize great food and great service but not excellence when it comes to running a business how many conversations are we having about prime cost and the importance of not delegating your marketing to a tech company that doesn't give a fuck about you right yep like like these these are the conversations that need to be had and these are the lessons that need to be taught and it's really hard when there's no one to learn from yeah so when you were coming up so did you I mean, you did. I, I, everything you said there is, is spot on. I, I came up and I learned from the people before me and I saw the restaurants that I went to and that I liked going to and that I had worked in and that's 
just kind of how I continued doing my thing. At what point, because I can remember the point when I started thinking differently about this. Um, and I can remember when this changed for me personally, and it's uh, very similar. We both have kind of young families, and uh, it's very similar for me. But when did you when did you start seeing this? Because clearly this must have been kind of like a like a slow burn, right? It didn't all just happen one morning. You must have been feeling this and seeing this long before the moment when you woke up and said enough. I felt it. I mean, I felt it for years and years and years. And I always thought that the solution was more money, more prestige, more accolades. You know, I was always I was always moving the goalposts, but ironically, moving it in the wrong direction. Right. I'll be I'll be happy when. Right. Right. You know, chasing these things. What what really impacted my my perspective was uh, I joined the Entrepreneurs Network or the Entrepreneurs Association. So it's it's an organization of. Uh, 22,000 entrepreneurs across the world. Everyone has a business that generates more than a million dollars a year. And everybody comes from a variety of industries. And this may come as a shock to some of you, but there aren't a lot of restaurateurs in the organization. Um, and, and so I had the opportunity to learn from professionals outside of the industry. And I saw that, sure, some people were working 80 to 100 hours a week, but those people were also top lining $50 million a year. You know, like they, there were, there are better ways to do business. And so I began to ask myself, like, what can I internalize from the lessons these people have learned? What tactics, tools, and strategies can I use from them? Because I was told my whole life that like the restaurant industry operates by different rules. We cannot, <laughs> with their different fundamentals for the way we do business than there are for the way <laughs> other, right? You, you laugh, but it like, I believe no, that. it's. I 100% bought into that shit, yeah. right? Because the only people that I knew believed the same things that I believed, you know? Yeah. And I learned it from credible sources. And so it was when I began to look outside the industry that I was like, I had been thinking about this all wrong. And, uh, and, I, and I fundamentally changed the way I thought, and then I fundamentally changed the way I worked. So now you started stepping away. So you ran these properties, right? So you had the bar. You had the restaurant that spun off into the fried chicken concept, right? And you ran these successfully for a long time. When did the, those start winding down for you? Because you obviously were starting to think of pulling yourself out of the, the grind at some point. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yet again, hubris rears its ugly head. So 2019, <laughs> we're included in the, uh, in the Michelin Guide, which was like one of the, the biggest achievements of my life. But we got a bib gourmand. We didn't get a star. Yeah. Um, and so what I should have seen is like this amazing moment. I felt like it was a slap in the face. And so the reason we didn't get a star was because we didn't deserve a star. So how are we going to deserve a star? And it's going to be maniacal focus. So the bar had been a cash cow for over 10 years. The fast casual concept was well on its way to becoming a staple. But at that point in my life, I really didn't give a shit about either. So I sold them at fourth quarter of 2019 with, with the exclusive focus at the top of 2020 to take pro and proper and turn it into a one star Michelin rated experience. And I knew mm. I could do it. I knew that if that was all I had to focus on, I would nail it. And so that was the plan in January and in February and then March hit and, and everything changed. So then talk to me about the decision to then shutter the restaurant instead of pivoting the restaurant or rebirthing it in, in some other fashion. My rent was $21,000 a month, man. How many hot dogs and burgers am I going to sell out the back door to get it done? Also, I mean, I literally just sold two very profitable concepts so that I could focus on fine dining, so that I could mm -hmm. achieve certain metrics. And when the pandemic hit, I, you know, there are these little voices in our head, you know, that, that, you know, when the pandemic hit and everything slowed down, they just got a lot louder. And you know, I was in the same headspace that everyone else was in and survival. You know, how are we going to survive? How are we going to make it through this? Which, I mean, if there are two questions that we ask ourselves every day as restaurateurs, right? It's those two questions. <laughs> um, but I asked a different question. I was like, you know, is this really what I want to do with my time? Do I want to pivot this into like some delivery model and negotiate with yeah. my landlords on a weekly basis just so that I can do something that I don't want to do for a living? And the answer was yeah. no period full stop and so because we're all on this hamster wheel but i mean the pandemic was the first time i had ever been afforded the opportunity to ask why you know why yeah. am i doing this um and i also felt like 
I was fueling a broken machine, right? Like I was as much part of the problem as I could be part of the solution. And when the what do you mean by that? When the pandemic hit, everybody was having the same conversation. Oh, the pandemic fucked us. Things were going so well, and now they're not. But I knew nobody was making any money. I wasn't making that much money. And I knew everybody was working themselves to death. And so it wasn't the pandemic that fucked us. It was the pandemic that brought to light the foundational issues that I knew existed within our industry. And so, you know, I, I, I wrote a couple of op-eds where I was like, you know, these are the issues with the industry and nobody gave a shit. And so, you know, I reached out to my friends and I was like, this is what's wrong with your business model. This is what's wrong with your restaurant. And nobody cared. At scale, nobody gave a shit. Yeah. And then, you know, I started the podcast and I came out publicly and said, this is what was wrong with my business. This is what was wrong with my life. Who's with me? Who's struggling yeah. through the same things that I struggled with? Why don't we try and find solutions together? Um, and I knew I was good. I knew I was damn good at my job. And so if I was struggling with these things, I knew I couldn't be alone. So, you know, over the last 18 months, I've leveraged my 20 plus years of experience in this industry, plus 150 plus conversations with some of the smartest people in this industry and outside of this industry, from Seth Godin to Wolfgang Puck, trying to figure out what the recipe for guaranteed success in this industry is. And what have you learned from those 150 plus interviews? And I agree with you that the uh, some of the best interviews on that show are the ones with people from outside the industry for for all the reasons you're uh, you're outlining here is that they just think differently. They don't uh, they don't take uh, the scripture that we all that we all accept. So what have you learned? That it's simple. It's not particularly easy, but it's it's very simple to create an incredibly profitable restaurant concept. There are really only three things to look at. Uh, the best operators in the world and the things that I would say were truly my strengths um, were you know, the ability to create a profitable model, right? Your revenue model. What does that look like? That's the first lever. The second lever is your ability to get attention. Um, and then the, the third comes down to frequency. Can you develop a rapport and a system of communication with your customers where you can get them back in when you need them? And like, that's it. If you can control your revenue model, your ability to get attention and customer frequency, you can scale infinitely working 40 hours a week. So how do you begin? How does an independent operator begin down that path of... Um because uh, I know you, you've got this thing on your website, this this Venn diagram, which outlines it really beautifully. Uh, we'll include this in the show notes so that everyone can kind of look at it. Talk to me about how, like you said, it's not easy, but it's simple. So talk to me about how they overlap and talk to me about how that thing, uh, how, how uh, just an independent operator in the middle of wherever can, uh, can do that. Well, you begin at the beginning. So everyone wants to talk about top line sales, but, but top line sales are a function of ego. I have no problem with doing it, but most people are fueling a broken machine. They're spending a fortune on uh, Facebook ads when their businesses break even, or they've got like a 5% net. You're not going to improve anything in your life with a 5% net. It's going to be hard to do with a 10% net. So you've got True. to... You've got to fix your revenue model. If you're not netting out 15%, don't do shit until you are, period. Um, and and they, there are a variety of ways to do that, but when you're looking at it, it's going to come down to really evaluating your margin, um, but then also asking the right questions and focusing on the best ways to increase the ability for people to engage with your restaurant. I always look at demand and I say, <clears throat> you know, are you capturing 100% of the demand for your restaurant? No, nobody is. And the reason being, there's always room to grow, especially on peak. Most of the conversations that you have and that I have revolve around how to get busier on a Monday night. I don't know. Give away free shit. You know, <laughs> that's not going to make you any more money. Um, but that's everybody wants to get busier on a Monday when there's a ton of money left on the table on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Like, look at your dead hours right on peak and then drive traffic when people are already out the value proposition is wrong when people are already out on a saturday night it requires a very light lift and typically just an invitation to get them to come see you when they are already out but to convince someone to come in on a monday is convincing them to put on pants for them <laughs> to get in their car drive to your place eat your shit, and go home 
and it just doesn't make sense. And once you, once you're you, trying to change behavior, and that's really what you're talking about, right? I mean, this is so much of what marketing is about. Marketing is about uh, culture and behavior. I, I firmly believe, and it's about um, it, we can change behavior, or we can or we can lean into it. Exactly like you're saying here. Absolutely. And then, you know, I think the last part of, of, you know, creating a really profitable revenue model comes down to diversifying revenue. What's your strategy to sell gift cards? How many do you want to sell a year? I want to sell about twenty-five dollars to $50,000 a year worth of gift cards. So how am I going to do it? What's my strategy? Gift cards are like the best money on the planet. I mean, especially with the supply chain issues that we have today, it's a huge missed opportunity. And it's really, to e- it's really easy to sell gift cards relative to like your competitors because they're not trying to sell gift cards. You know. So how do you sell? So how do you do that? How do you put? How do you begin to put together a, a program, a series? So we're talking about the strategy. Your strategy is to diversify revenue streams. Gift cards are great. It's the lo- easily the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. So then talk to me about then the tactics of how you do. It. Is it simply just by being aware of it and making it a priority? No. It, it, it's about creating systems to sell them. So it should be part of your steps of service, right? And there, there should be, um, you know, one of my clients was talking about this recently, and I absolutely love it. Johnny Rayzone, I did a live town hall with him, and he talked about this scenario as well. It's beautiful. It's called a win-win-win, right? So you turn to your staff and you say, listen, I'm trying to sell 10,000 gift cards, $10,000 worth of gift cards this month and every month. Whoever sells the most gift cards, you're going to get X, Y, or Z, right? And so you're not just selling gift cards on your website and on social, even though you should totally do that shit. Um, What you do is at the conclusion of every meal, you say, hey, did you enjoy yourself? I just want to let you know, if we can tack on a gift card to the end of this meal, you know, we'll give you a 10, 20% discount on that gift card. And just so you know, like I'm a college student and the owner said that he's going to give whoever sells the most gift cards this month a free laptop. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So the, con- the consumer wins, the server wins, and the restaurateur wins. And that incremental money adds up over time. And so it's just, it's part of a holistic strategy. How often are you talking about it on social? Is it front and center on your website? Because it's certainly something you should be selling. Yep. You know, but if, it's, if, if it is not part of a holistic plan, it is not going to get done. What are the other diversified revenue streams? Because I totally agree with you. Um, I, I, I want to know what other ones that you see as being really profitable and, you know, uh, low-hanging fruit of sorts. I think that large format catering and, and events are probably the two biggest. So um, either either you can, if you have a small place, right, catering is the way to go. They, they, you, you have a central focus on manufacturing and you're doing it by outselling the competition. You're, you just become a better marketer. You get better with outreach. You're reaching out to every office building in the city, right? Every apartment complex. And and you begin to, to have a central focus on selling more large format. I'm all about meal prep, right? I'm all about like canning your shit, selling it on the website for retail. But that's not the lowest hanging fruit. You know, uh, in my restaurant, um, I was able to increase top line sales by a million dollars a year simply by selling a million dollars worth of events over the course of yeah. a year. It was that simple. And the reason I was able to do it was I had great food. I had great beverages. I had a great concept. I had a great building. And I was a great marketer. And you had a differentiated product, which helped, right? It, you weren't like everything else out there. You What you did was very specific. And it was easy to say, this is what we do. If you want something like this, you know where to go. I don't. Yeah, I, I must tell you, like, just to be candid, I don't put a whole lot of value in, in product. And, you know, I ran a Michelin rated concept. So hmm. obviously I gave a shit about product, but ultimately at the end of the day, I don't want to sell better shit than everyone else. Like that's not my ambition. My ambition is to be a better marketer. I don't want to compete on food. There are too many young, aggressive, independent concepts coming out. that are going to eat your lunch anyway. They're more interesting. They're more compelling and they're coming out every day. The only way to compete is to, to compete in marketing. You can have a bigger menu, I'll have a bigger list. Yeah, no, listen, and I don't know that I agree with you because I think differentiation, really, you know, understanding what you have, who you are, who you're for, and, you know, gets to the heart of marketing. In, in my in my mind, it's always a matter of knowing, you know, what problem do you solve? Um, and not as like high my, high and lofty as, as, as it sounds, but, but just whose problem do you solve? Now, a little bodega at the end of uh, at my corner serves really great breakfast sandwiches really fast and coffee at half the price that Starbucks right around the corner. So it's more convenient, it's cheaper. It's easier for me to do this and then go to the subway. So they're solving my problem. When I'm running late to get into the city, I just go there to get a breakfast sandwich and a coffee. And so that's the problem they're solving. Um, 
So I think in terms of that. But there's no loyalty there. There's no fidelity there. As soon as a place opens up that's incrementally cheaper, incrementally closer to your house, that's where you go. That is when, that's what happens when your value is not based off ideology. So like in being a better marketer, you're not going to give my restaurant money. You're going to give me money. My name's Josh. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I opened this concept in this space because I believe these things. If you believe these things too, please give me your fucking money. Like that, that is how you outmarket the competition, not by being so, cheaper or more convenient. No, no, no. I, I, no, I, listen, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, when we talk about competitive strategy or strategic positioning, there are a lot of ways to compete. You can be more convenient, you can be cheaper, you can be nicer, you can be a uh, bigger menu, more variety. There's a lot of ways you can compete. But what you just said there actually gets to the heart of what I very much do believe, which is that uh, we all have a personal story, right? And I always say this on this show, what are the stories only you can tell? And I think that gets the heart of how you differentiate it. So for me, it's never about competing, about trying to be better, because better is a trap, right? It's called the better trap, uh, but being different, um, and maybe that is, you know, listen, there's only one Josh Copel in the world, there's only one person with your story, your background, your experience, um, that's how you are differentiated, and that's how the restaurants were differentiated. You just chose to, to position it uh, by putting you front and center. So. So I think I think there is overlap in what we're talking about, but but explain to me about how you don't think about product or you don't put weight in product. I, I think that it, I, I think that it is incredibly important to serve a great product, but I don't compete on product. I don't hang my hat on product. At the end of the day, when you look at my Michelin-rated fine dining restaurant, we served the same shit that everyone else served, plus a couple of other things. Right? We served steak and chicken and fish and vegetables just like everybody else we prepared it in a somewhat unique way but certainly nothing that was proprietary right we were exceptional yep. because our values were exceptional so then talk to me about that i i think that if you run a culture first data-driven concept um that it's much easier to compete in the market we went out there and we said we are southern i have a southern pedigree my executive chef has a Southern pedigree. And these are the values that we've brought into this establishment. This is a community table. And our goal is, and we were very public about this, when you think high-end Southern food on the West Coast, I want you to hear my name. The most successful restaurants take brand and design very seriously. That includes aesthetics like architecture, lighting, music, all the way down to the silverware and the plating of a dish. But a restaurant is nothing without the people that make it come alive. And so the natural question is, how do you dress your staff? Stock manufacturing has been crafting premium apparel since 2012, and they are constantly called upon by Michelin-level restaurants for their expertise. With stock, you get the best of both worlds, right? All the style of retail with the price, continuity, and customer service from a traditional uniform vendor. They offer an assortment of everyday items that are ready to ship with no minimum order quantity, and you can make these items stand out with custom touches like embroidery, hats, pins. They can also design fully custom uniform plans from, from the ground up to complement your restaurant's brand, decor, and environment. They are offering a special promotion for listeners of this podcast, wholesale pricing on all in-stock products, plus 50% off design fees if you choose to get a fully custom uniform set. Visit stockmfg.co slash chip to get started. Again, S-T-O-C-K-M-F-G dot C-O slash chip. As always, that link is in the show notes. See, and that gets to the differentiation conversation. High-end Southern cooking on the West Coast. That's your that's your position. You own it. By your own admission, you owned that position uh, and and elbowed out everybody, right? And nobody was going to compete with you because you owned that, right? It's like it's like Volvo with safety, right? Even if other cars come in with a higher safety rating, which exists, Subaru constantly beats out Volvo. But still, when I say, uh, what's the safest car on the road? 10 out of 10 people on the road, uh, on the street, when I interview them, are going to say Volvo because Volvo owns that position. You guys own that position, which is exactly... Uh, which is exactly what I talk about. So then 
talk to me about this culture first data driven uh, uh, conceit this this philosophy uh, so I believe in leadership I don't really believe in management I believe that, that you hire you hire professionals um, that can self-manage and self-motivate and then you're just kind of pointing them in the right direction and showing them the destination and they're smart enough to know how to get there so when I talk about culture first you know I, I think that every restaurant should have a brand promise you know for us it was that everybody leaves happy there, there are no asterisks there. There are no caveats there. Everybody leaves happy. I don't care how much I have to spend, what it's going to take. Everybody leaves happier than the moment they walked into the restaurant. And when you set that brand promise and you explain to your team who you are, why you open the restaurant, and, and what you're willing to do to make that happen and empower them to do the same, you know, you never hear about a dish coming back to the kitchen or someone not liking something or somebody walking up to you saying, you know, well, it's somebody's birthday. What should I do? Because they can act independently because they're professionals, because you've gotten out of the habit of saying, <clears throat> I need you to show up on time. I need you to show up ready to work. You can't be hungover. I need you to be positive and enthusiastic. Those are all foregone conclusions because you've hired for culture, not for skill. Skill is overrated, especially in our industry. And so if you hire for culture, then you end up in a much better place. That way, what you are managing is the, are not the people, you're managing the data, the numbers. Yep. And you're letting that indicate how you should proceed within your business. So hiring for culture is one piece but there's also a there's there's something deliberate that's required how, how do you how do you build culture or is it simply a matter of this is how we conduct ourselves we don't we don't micromanage we don't we're not going to pester you about being late how do you i mean you make it sound so easy but um but i want to understand how how that culture is built beyond just hiring people that uphold uh, or share the same value set as you all you do is hire people that share the same value set as you and then attach accountability to it. So, you know, as an example, like the reason that I never had to talk about you being late is because if you were late, I fired you. It's a professional environment. That's how it works, right? So if you didn't have a good excuse or you didn't have a doctor's note or you no called, no showed or you showed up not wearing your uniform, you don't work here. Because I would rather pay a great employee double time and work them to the ground than I would have them work part-time standing next to somebody doing a shitty job. Yep. Because that demotivates the whole team. And we as an industry have spent far too much time trying to lift up the worst employees we have as opposed to like really doubling down on the best members of our team, which is sad for us and unfair for them so then talk to me because i'm sure uh, listeners uh, to this show are feeling the staffing uh, crunch the staffing crisis really hard and they're thinking i'm sure i would love to do that but i can't afford to just walk in and fire the three people who are late I i'm talking to operators now uh, who can't fire the people who no show right it used to be no call no show no job and now they can't even do that so they're having to muscle through how do you apply uh, everything you're saying right now to what's going on in real time in the world? It's simple, but it's not particularly easy. I, I mean, you have to make choices based on uh, your staffing levels, right? So if you have a staff of 15 and you know that five need to go, so now you have a staff of 10, how can you effectively operate that restaurant in a profitable way with only 10 people? How does tech play a role in that? How do hours of operation play a role in that? Maybe you're open five days a week instead of seven days a week. You know, the, the statistics on that are absolutely yeah. startling. Over the course of six months, when you drop one to two days a week, you end up making 90% of that revenue back over the course of six months with fewer hours of operation. So I, it's, again, like I, I think you do what's best for your business. Always understanding that simply being open and simply surviving are not metrics of success. I want to pause this conversation here, and I want to go back. I want to go back to the beginning, and I want to know... What got you into this industry? What did you fall in love with in the beginning? What do you still, is that still what makes you love it? Or, or has that changed? So I've always said that, that people that are super passionate about food become foodies. And people that are super passionate about people become restaurateurs. Um, I've never particularly cared about food and beverage. It, it's not something that gets me up in the morning. I care about people. 
I care about the, the, the privilege that comes from being able to help someone celebrate their birthday or a big win at work or an anniversary or, you know, on the other side of that coin, you know, memorials and things like that for loved ones that have passed. We have this extraordinary opportunity to create impact on, on, on a micro scale. And it's, I've always seen it as a privilege. And uh, so I got into this to help people. And so when I look at what I do today, as opposed to what I did two years ago, it's still the same thing. I, I'm still serving people. I just went from serving my local community to serving my industry. I love that. So you talked a few minutes ago about, you know, we should be guarding uh, at least 15 you know, 15 points, you know, 15% net income at the bottom. And I, I totally agree. In fact, uh, when I coach uh, clients, I, I, we build budgets and, you know, that get us to 20. And the idea being is that we uh, are going to fall short and then great, then we make 16 or 15. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice to fall short of that and still hit uh, above where we could have imagined? How, um, how do, how do people, how do people do that? Um, I want to I want to understand how how you come at it as a restaurateur as a former restaurateur. I mean the same way everybody should look at your prime cost and fix them. It's as simple as that. Look at your cogs. Look at your labor. Look at your lease rate and make adjustments accordingly. Yep. I mean you know to to dumb it down even further than that. Look at your pricing, right? And and don't be afraid to go out of business. Be afraid to continue working for free. Yeah. <laughs> I, listen, I totally agree. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm constantly surprised at uh, is that people um, people have a sense of their cost of goods sold, but they don't know definitively. That they, they don't know what was my food cost last week, what was my wine cost, what was my liquor cost at. You know, w- what does that all add up to? Uh, that they have a sense of their uh, of their labor cost because they look at toast and toast tells them what they were what they were running at yesterday, but they don't understand. For me, the thing that I've been spending a lot of time talking about, uh, they don't understand the relationship that labor has to do with revenue, that those should move in parallel, that if one goes up, then the other can go up. The other, If one comes down, then the other has to come down. And oftentimes you see, I mean, I remember, it was probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago, when I was taught how to really build a schedule based on a budget. I delivered a schedule to a general manager, and he said, what are you doing? You're $1,000 over budget. I was like, well, this is how many people we need to run the restaurant. I was like, no, you need to hit this number in order for us to hit the the margins the, that uh, the restaurant owners, that the owners, uh, that the parent company is expecting. You go back and figure it out. And I did, and it was a real lesson. And it's a lesson that I talk to uh, operators about all the time, is that you know making projections and figuring it based on historical data, which I know is difficult now because we've never gone through something like this. Um, I'm constantly surprised by how few people have a budget for the year ahead. I mean, here it is the end of uh, 2022. We're, we're now turning the, the page into the new year. Uh, and I'm surprised by how many people haven't built their budget yet for the following year. Do, do you find that a lot as well? Are you really surprised by that, Chip? or is that is that just a figure of speech i mean look when you're working 100 hours a week and you just got done plunging a toilet and now the floor drains are backed up you're gonna have to pay two thousand dollars to hydro jet that shit like who has time to sit down and do a budget it just doesn't make sense and again it's this overall mindset of you know overwhelm right paired with too many real-time distractions probably one of the only industries in the world outside of firefighting where when little fires come up they are literal fires and so it's i think a lot of people don't know where to start which is why i say you know start with profitability i agree with you that like people should look at their you know look at their prime costs and really begin to extrapolate from there but i would also encourage everyone that's listening to understand that you're not going to save your way to profitability correct it's just not going to happen and so you can nickel and dime yourself or you can focus on the biggest issues that exist within your restaurant and everything comes down to your revenue model are you priced for profitability or are you trying to like knock your competition out because you're trying to sell the cheapest shit for the longest period of time and that's that's where we've been but it's it all starts with you and what i would encourage everyone to do that's listening is to act right i listen i totally agree i mean uh, you know if, <laughs> if you uh, if you don't take action none of it works doesn't matter if you uh, if you've got the best idea in the world if you don't put into action uh, nothing is going to work um, 
Tell me how then you think about, so I agree with you. I mean, the, the lesson I always give is that I say, you know, here are your costs. And we talk about, you know, prime costs and understanding how the operating expenses and the relationship they have with the revenue. I said, it's fine. You can spend more money, but then you got to make more money because those numbers, the prime costs are tethered to the revenue. So I'd love for you to hire more people and give them all more hours and all of that. Uh, then you got to make more money and you got to figure out how to how to drive more revenue as long as it moves in um, it moves in uh, in correlation with each other talk to me about then that revenue side of it because like you said you're not gonna you're not gonna save your way to um, to a profitable restaurant so the secret then is on the revenue side so so then talk to me about that how do people drive more revenue there, well, that, then you get into the other two levers, which are, you know, attention and frequency. It's about getting new people through the door and encouraging other people to come, you know, people that have already come through to come back. On the attention side, I, I think there are three key components to look at. The first is, how do you get attention? And social media is a great way to get attention. But most of us don't use it in that way. We use social media to sell. You put up a photo of a piece of pie on Instagram and you say, please come to my fucking restaurant. That is, that is sales. That's not how you get attention. You get attention through storytelling and resonance with those stories. So if we use social media in the way that it was intended, which is to get attention, to tell stories, to engage, to build meaningful connections with other people. If you lived in people's DMs and you commented on their comments, and that's all you spend the time doing, as well as like on Instagram Reels, like telling your story. You would be much further along. Who's doing it really well out there right now? Can you point us in the direction of some uh, some concepts, some companies that are doing it really well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Christina Tosi with Mopar does it really well. I think Johnny Rayzone with Helen Rays does it really well. Um, I, I think there are a bunch of people out there. I think Mark Canlis uh, over at Canlis in Seattle is doing an incredible job of selling people his culture, right? Um, and then, you know, once they're in, that's when you have the opportunity to sell them. But you know, when you turn to your wife and you're like, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight, you don't pop open Instagram to see. That's not that's not where the consumer intent is. The consumer intent is on Google, it's on Yelp, and it's on your website. And so my question to the people listening is, are those sites set up to sell, right? Do you have strong calls to action, strong photography? What does that photography look like? Instagram is where you show a photo of food. Your website is where you show photos of people eating. On your website, on the Google page, on your Yelp listing, you show experience and you invite people into that experience. This is what we do. This is what it would be like for you to experience. Come in and enjoy it. These are marketing basics, photography, copywriting, calls to action. That's how you set it up. And then the last part of that is removing all of the friction. So whenever you go somewhere now, think about your own life, you're nervous. Where am I going to park? Where's the entrance to the door? Do they have gluten-free options? Is there a patio? You know, most people that go out to dinner, um, or lunch for that matter, they want to have a great experience. How can you reassure them through these pages that they're going to have a great experience? Because that's where the decision takes place. It doesn't take place on Instagram. So we're selling on Instagram and then using our, uh, our, our sales pages to attract, and we need to reverse that. Uh, and then the last. Yeah, no, I was going to say, it's really great the way you put that there. And that was the next question I was going to ask, but I'll let you go. The next, the last piece. The, the last piece is, is amplifying all of the things that you're doing uh, through PR. You know, I, I ask everyone that I work with, you know, are you getting earned media? Are you in the roundups? Are people talking about your restaurant? Is there that level of exposure? Are you getting more press or as much press as your competitors? And the answer is always no. And it's always because I don't have a publicist. But then, you know, we've got to have the time to, like, unpack that. What do publicists do? They build relationships. That's all they do. Like, you get press with a publicist not because they love your restaurant, but because they love your publicist. So if that's the case, reach out to the editors yourself. Hey, my name's Chip. This is my restaurant. I think we do a really good job here, and I'd love for you to come check it out. And then they come to your restaurant. You share that experience with them, and then you say, hey, Fat Tuesday's coming up. We're having a party. I'd love for you to come. And maybe they write about it. Maybe they don't. But in building those relationships, it will pay dividends for years. So then talk to me about time, though, because now we're, we've spent a lot of time talking about how people work 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week. 
and uh, they don't have time to do a budget so that they uh, I'm sure they're going to sit here and think well I certainly don't have time to go explore to figure out who all the editors and, and journalists are and then to write emails and, and build those relationships with them so is there uh, is there a shortcut to get there what's the what's the shorthand um, to starting to build those relationships so that it's not a time suck. What is, I mean, what is marketing? I mean, marketing is not like, oh, I'm going to sit down and do marketing today. Uh, marketing is something that you're perpetually doing. So like if it's a busy service and you can feel that energy in the room, then you just shoot it on your phone. It takes five minutes to reach out to the editor that, that did a roundup that you want to be included in next year. It's a five minute email. Like you can, you can effectively market your restaurant in five minutes a day. And the time that you spend checking out your competitors on Instagram, you can post to Instagram. Like, we do have time. We just misspend our time. So then talk about that. Yeah, talk about misspent time. Well, I mean, we are, we are constantly breaking promises to ourselves, right? I'm going to work on this. I'm going to achieve this goal. This is going to be my focus. I'm going to work on my business, not in my business. Mondays are my day right? Mondays, I've got this list. I'm going to do all of these things. And then the next thing you know, you know, your, your executive sous chef got stuck in the convection oven. And so the whole day is done. Um, it's, it's, you know, we misspend our time because we don't keep our commitments to ourselves. And it's, you know, it's no different than exercising, man. Like you don't find the time you make the time. Yeah. Liz Gilbert, lover. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, you know, if, if that's the case, then all we have to do is make the time. And so I'm just advocating that you take five minutes a day at the top of your day to send one email or record one video yep. or make one phone call. And that everyone has time to do that. So I love this because this is one of the so one of the things that I, I feel really strongly about is this, you know, you open up your doors every day when you say you're gonna open up your doors. So you do keep your promises to uh, to the others, right? And uh, and exactly like you're saying. So I say, you know, just imagine uh, imagine you've got to do these jobs at set times, put them on a calendar and make them uh, make them as concrete as your opening and, and closing times, right? You, you don't, uh, you, you're not gonna open up 15 minutes late. Um, is it really just that simple? Just say, hey, I'm going to spend a half an hour of every day doing this. I'm going to spend a half an hour a day doing it, or five minutes a day doing this and five minutes a day doing this. I don't even think it's about allocating time. I think it's about just committing to completing the task, right? I'm, I'm going to spend five minutes a day sending emails. No, like tomorrow I'm going to email Judy. I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. So you fire off that email to Judy. I find that sometimes that's difficult for people because then it becomes like uh, like overwhelming. It's sometimes easier if you just drop some time on the calendar and you say, hey, I do 30 minutes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, which are all about me, you know, scrolling through Eater and the infatuation and whatever else and seeing who's writing articles that I should have been in and say, hey, I'm going to do this 30 minutes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or on Monday for 30 minutes, I'm going to do this. And then for Wednesday for 30 minutes, I'm going to uh, take all my reels. I'm going to shoot the kitchen, whatever. It's easier to kind of drop that in at a time. And then you know it, just like you open your doors at a at a certain time. I, I almost find that that's, um, it becomes easier to, to hold your promise to yourself. I think that comes down to accountability. I, I really do. I, I think that different people are going to work effectively in different ways. But what you need is I, I think you need someone breaking your ball, someone that you need to turn to and say, hey, I did this this week. I didn't do this this week. That that ultimately is the secret sauce. And whether that is a fellow restaurateur, whether you have a business coach, whether it's your wife. In my case, it's always been my wife. Um, and even though I don't pay her in the traditional sense, she is worth millions of dollars. My wife has always held me accountable, you know. Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? We should use the people that love us in our lives to help make us better. Yeah. Listen, I, I love this so much. Um, I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about the pandemic, right? A lot has been said about the pivot. We've, 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 uh, people did it or didn't do it. Uh, they did it and it worked. They did it and didn't work. They closed. They opened. I like to say that it's not, you know, it's not a pivot. It's a, it's an evolution that we have to, cons- you know, that what the, what the pandemic did is force us to do something, right? Because we couldn't keep doing the thing that we had done. Um, and we actually should have been pivoting all along. We should have been, our restaurants should have been evolving as technology comes along, as dining habits uh, keep changing and, and all of that. Talk to me about what kind of long-term effect you think the pandemic's gonna have or what what people are learning or should be taking away from the whole experience of the last two years. 
Honestly, man, I think it remains to be seen. I don't know if there'll be any long-term impacts from the pandemic. I see a bunch of folks out there, you know who you are, walking that shit back already. That's, you know, that's why I choose to come on these shows. That's why I'm advocating, because I saw massive evolutions. I, we saw massive adoption of technology. And now you walk into a restaurant and they're handing you a paper menu and a QR code at the same time. <laughs> like, like, so... You know, I, I, you know, and, and you see it, right? Like I got, I got a mailer in the, in the mail the other day for some taco Tuesday promotion where they're basically giving everything away for free. If, if you buy two margaritas. So I don't know if there's, there, there's going to be a long-term impact. It seems like because demand is as high as it is, everybody's kind of going back to business as usual, sticking their heads in the sand. And I don't say it to be shitty. I say it because it's true. And so I think that, that, you know, when times are great and look, we came out of a bull economy, right? So going into the pandemic, restaurants had never been busier, which is why you saw so many shitty restaurants out there surviving and thriving. Um, you know, I, I think that we're seeing that same demand now. I, we just don't have, you know, the food supply or the labor supply to meet it. But if we did, I think most people would just forget about all of the lessons that we learned over the last 18 months. Interesting. You know, I think technology is going to have a huge uh, impact. I mean, I, I see it. It's coming. It's happening. Um, the the huge chains, they're the companies with uh, the resources to be able to do it. They're already doing it. And it breaks my heart because independents were the ones who learned the lessons so um, so viscerally over the, the pandemic. Uh, and and I, I, my fear is that they're not going to reap the rewards of it because it's, it's the chains. And you can see the uh, the massive sort of investment that's being made in technology and restaurants. What do you think the biggest technological piece that's gonna kind of shift our industry? I, I think it's data capture. I think that it, ultimately when, when the pandemic started, restaurateurs fell into two classes. The ones that owned their restaurant data and the ones that thought they owned their restaurant data. Just because you know what some dude looks like, you know his first name and you know kind of where he works, doesn't mean you own that customer. You don't own that customer unless you have his first name, last name, email address, phone number, and birthday. So a central focus on data collection along with the tools to do that effortlessly is going to be what really transitions our industry from being the same way it's been for 100 years to uh you know to the restaurants of the future i love that i i could not agree more um josh listen i appreciate you taking the time today um any last words of wisdom for people where can they uh they go to learn more about you you can go to my website joshcopel.com i have a bunch of free tools there i would also recommend that everyone joins the million dollar restaurant facebook group i am dropping uh free trainings and strategies and tools and worksheets in there every single week so if you go to the million dollar restaurant facebook group um you can get it all for free awesome josh i really appreciate you being here taking time out of your day uh sharing your wisdom uh with the uh, the audience here really appreciate it. enjoy the rest of your day thank you once again i want to thank josh for joining us today on the show all those links are in the show notes go check out uh his website uh and if you don't already uh, listen to the full comp podcast really really great conversations every single week uh with with industry leaders and people outside of our industry uh that offer really refreshing perspectives about what we do and and, and why we do it uh i want to thank josh for being part of the show uh, one final reminder as well that i've got these two webinars today and tomorrow january 24th january 25th all about the two secrets to restaurant profitability visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash webinar to secure your spot thank you very much for being here guys stay tough stay creative i'll see you next time